but I want you to feel what is the very extreme point mm-hmm. of this style of moving. What's the other extreme? And then we're going to come back and find a middle point that works for you. And so finding those extremes, whether in your case, it's tall versus squatting, it could be quickness on the first step versus projection on the first step, maximal projection versus maximal quickness, and then finding that middle point. By doing that, by finding those extremes, it opens up your your movement abilities and can get you out of stereotyped movements. And if you're just stuck in stereotyped movements, that's when your progress stalls. That was Cody Bidlow, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Lila Exogen Wearable Resistance Gear. Exogen is a huge leap forward in resistance training. So often when we think of resistance, we think of a sled, a weighted vest, but Lila Exogen Wearable Resistance is micro instead of macro. It's high velocity and it's fully customizable to both assist or resist any athletic pattern you're looking at, be it sprinting, jumping, throwing, striking, and beyond. It's been used by many podcast guests and elite coaches. And I just see it as a huge leap forward in training. I use it myself. I absolutely love it. You can grab 15% off your order. And to do so, head to lilateam.com. That's L-I-L-A team.com. And use the code JFS2023. That's JFS2023 at checkout for 15% off your order. It's an absolutely amazing training tool. And I hope you get the chance to check it out. Welcome to another episode of the show. It's great to have you here. Our guest today is Cody Bidlow. Cody is currently the head track and field coach at Arcadia High School in Phoenix, Arizona. He's also a coach at Elite U where he works with NFL combine prep athletes and has trained a great number of athletes across a variety of sports. He owns SprintingWorkouts.com and he runs the Athlete X brand where you may have seen his educational content on YouTube, Instagram. Cody was an all-conference sprinter at Grand Canyon University and he continues to train today and sprint competitively. I've had a lot of sprint and speed training shows uh, as part of this podcast, and speed, whether you're a track coach or not, speed is obviously an important element of sport, and I see it as well that the principles of coaching speed, the skill that we've been doing since we were little and learned to race or chase each other, (laughs) and being able to push that limit, the things that we can find in that journey can really carry over not just to track and field or speed and sport, but any athletic pursuit and any outcome-based goal. For today's show, Cody will talk about his background as a track and field athlete and how he's competed through his 20s into his early 30s here and the influence and impact that's made on his coaching and his intuition. He'll be talking about motor learning concepts and technical development in sprinting. We'll be chatting on programming and sprinting, so sprint training design, specifically chatting about some longer or infusing longer sprints into a core speed training program. We'll be talking about some weight room concepts, uh, impulse-based strength development in the gym, and a whole lot more. This was a really fun chat. Cody is an absolute wealth of information, and he's got a ton of insights I know you're going to find really valuable. It was a really fun show to put together, and uh, let's get to it. Episode 349 with Cody Bidlow. Cody, it's great to have you on the show, man. Thanks for being here today. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me on. So first question is, I'm really intrigued by your own journey in sprinting because you're somebody who coaches, provides a ton of information for people, and you're also really 
still immersed in sprinting, competing. How, how old are you now? How long have you been training for sprinting? And, and talk to me first about your process as an athlete and how yeah. that's impacted you as a coach. For sure. So I'm 31 years old, live in Phoenix, Arizona, originally from Santa Barbara, California. And, you know, when I was young, my dad would go on runs and I would hold onto his shirt and I was basically doing overspeed training at like <laughs> six years old on the beach, you know, and I went into sports. I played baseball, played football, and I was always the fastest kid on my team, but I felt like there's always room to gain, you know? So once I was around 15 years old, as puberty's hitting, testosterone levels are going up, I started to really get, really want to start training. So I went out to a place called Philippi Sports Institute in Las Vegas, and I got exposed to just how one, just one example of what high performance training might look like. It's different from what I do now, but it was just that first thing that sort of kickstarted me into thinking, wow, you can really use training to get better as an athlete. So started learning, didn't have a lot of coaching in high school. We had a pretty dedicated high school coach, but we would do some crazy stuff like, you know, 20 by 400 and oh, <laughs> like God, ridiculous stuff, you know? <laughs> and so initially I started running track to get faster for football because I come from a family with a lot of football players, collegiate level, dabbled in some, you know, USFL type stuff uh, my dad did. And so I wanted to play football, but eventually once I was out of high school, I took a year off from sports just because there were things going on that distracted me from it. Took a year off and I got to a point where I really felt like I was just wasting, wasting time, wasting opportunity. And so I, I looked at myself in the mirror, was like, okay, you really need to focus on sports, do your best to play sports in college. And then wherever that goes is, you know, wherever it goes. But if this time passes and you never take advantage of it, then you're going to look back and regret it. So. First thing I did was, you know, go out to the track, ran four 120s, did some stadium sprints and threw up and realized that I needed to get in shape. So started training. I bought the triphasic training book, which, you know, I don't really use the, the program today. But the thing I love about that book is that for someone who's new to training, it can give you concepts and like fundamental concepts of adaptation and how to think about preparing someone for a sport that do stick with me to this day. And it really got my gears turning of thinking about specificity and how different forms of loading can be structured over time to create a certain outcome at a certain point in time. So I went, you know, full force with that for a while, probably didn't apply it completely correctly, probably went a little bit overboard on the, mm -hmm. on the lifting side of things. Once I was in community college, when I started running track again, my first year I got hurt because I wasn't really prepared for it. So once again, that really forced me to think, okay, I need to get even better at training because I don't want to get hurt and miss another season. My second season in community college, I was able to finally go from, I went basically 11-3 in high school to 11-1 to 10-8. Once I ran 10-8, I had about, it was, let's see, late July. I was looking at, I don't know where I'm going to transfer to, you know, after community college. Reached out to Grand Canyon University, talked to Tom Flood, and he let me on the team. So then I was able to, that was the year they went division one. So I was able to run division one track, compete at the conference level because we were in the probationary period. Once I was out of college, I didn't want to stop training because I looked at my times and I thought, well, I can definitely run faster. I had a lot of injuries my senior, my senior year. And so I just continued on this path of always trying to learn more, learn from the best, 
So at that time, I applied for the Altus internship so that I could go hang out with Dan Path and those guys. Spent a few months there, learned some interesting things, came away with a lot of questions and some questions answered. Then I went and coached at Santa Barbara City College, where I had gone to community college, coached there for a year, came back out to Phoenix, and I've been here ever since. And I've pretty much been training ever since then. I did get back into competing in this last year and a half or so. And I'm I'm seeing some progress. You know, I'm getting back to where I was in college, and I think I'll be able to to break those personal bests at some point. Uh, I have already broken some, like in in the 200 and the 150. So, you know, I'm I'm just in a place right now where I am very focused on my own training, paired with very focused on coaching at the high school level and coaching uh, some people outside of that NFL combine prep, some individual clients, and then of course the online content I put out. So right now, my life is really centered around developing myself and developing athletes. And I think that combination of pursuing both my own athletic pursuits and coaching pursuits, I think they work together really well in that I'm able to look at things both from the perspective of the athlete and as the coach at the same time. And I think that's positively influencing my coaching, probably more so than it's influencing my own training. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I like how you mentioned just like asking questions, getting questions answered. And I think that obviously the act of just simply coaching generates a lot of questions like, why is this athlete doing well? What is, or why is this athlete not doing well? What might this athlete need or this athlete need specifically? But I think that also the process of training yourself, at least in my experience, and I'm sure it's true in yours, has generated a massive amount of questions. <laughs> oh, so many. And yeah, I, I'm just curious too, what some of the, maybe just some of the questions in your own training journey that maybe think ways that you thought you needed to train, but you actually were going the wrong direction. And has there been any like big questions or shifts that you've asked yourself in the course of your own training journey that you feel like have been able to make a positive impact in the coaching and the way you see training athletes? Yeah, I mean, some of the big changes that have happened over time is how I look at technique and what what are the causes versus the effects. And sometimes I would look at things in sprint technique and I would think that it's a cause of sprint performance and really it's just a result of doing something else properly. So being a little bit more aware that, you know, one thing that happens in one stride may dictate what's happening two strides later. So trying to be a little bit more conscious of of that and not just looking at like one point in time and being like, oh, we need to fix this Mm -hmm. position. Well, something led to that position. And that might have been a timing issue. It might have been a posture issue. There's different things that can influence, you know, what happens down the track. Other things is I definitely do less like, for lack of a better term, like meathead lifting. (laughs) You know, when I was in high school and when I was in college, I would do so many exercises and just, I got super strong. You know, I benched 345. I could deadlift over 500 pounds on a straight bar at 179 pounds and things like that. But I just, I didn't really see the transfer from that to sprinting performance. I think there's a place for really heavy full range motion lifting in someone's development, but it's easy to go too far down that route. So I've, over time, I think I've become a little bit more aware of how do certain aspects of training take away from your performance? And that relates to like, when in a program are you applying a certain type of stimulus? And I think people are very quick to say, what's the best exercise? What's the best way of lifting? What's the best, you know, drill for this or that? 
but we have to look at what is the best way to lift at this time of the year to develop these qualities that set us up to develop other qualities. That might be a better question to ask. So one thing that has changed is, is how I think about those things. And generally speaking, um, I'm sure there's a lot more that I could go on, but those are some of the, the bigger items I would say is, you know, timing of when certain aspects of training are in your training and then how much do like those really heavy lifts, like how much does that actually affect you? For some, it's probably going to help. But for some people, like for me, if I do a bunch of like deep squatting, I get super slow. Someone else, it might make them faster. So being a little bit more conscious of that, there's, there's differences in how different types of training affect various athletes and what you do at one point in time may be beneficial. But if you do that too close to competition, now you're screwing yourself up and just trying to be conscious of that stuff. Yeah. I kind of, that's a big question to kind of spring on you is like, what are all the questions you've asked? <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah. gosh, it's probably been a million, you know, I yeah. mean, name three big ones right now. Uh, yeah. I, I do think, I, I definitely think though, that when people just get started coaching, it is by far the easiest to generalize. I think it's part of the way that our brains work. And you, you mentioned triphasic training. I, it's very similar with me as well. Like when I got started and it's still, regardless, it's still, if I open it now and read it, it'd be an amazing book, but it laid so much groundwork for me when I first started and I don't use it really as, as it's laid out anymore. But I think like just getting those general ideas of force and specificity when you get started is, is really helpful. But it's kind of like you mentioned, like you have to, some of those more general things that you start with that are the easy things, you know, it's easy to go and get someone stronger in the weight room when they're not that strong and see some performance improvements. It's easy to coach someone into some position that you can take a picture of and say, I'm, I'm successfully coaching you because I took a yeah. picture at your at the golden position and well look your knees ahead and it's like well that's not necessarily that hard I mean even even my son who's four just I it's funny because I don't even do these drills but he like was doing some like boom switching drill on his own just for fun and it's like you don't even come close to these positions when I watch you playing tag I don't know why, yeah. why you did this but it's it's not it's it's I do feel like it's that journey where we start with the the easy tangible can you do this or not thing and then it's the process of asking questions so like you know like okay this person can hit this position in this wicket drill but then they went and raced and they didn't hit that same position in fact the whole thing is a little different well why instead of going yeah. back to practice and saying well you need to be here maybe yeah asking like well why were you not there or and i think i think the easiest one is the weights because i think we've all been there on some level at least yeah for the most part i know i was like that was the first thing for me i was like yeah I definitely am stronger this year, but well, my stride length got way worse in high jump and triple <laughs> jump. And what happened there? I don't, you know, and see so that starts that question asking um, process. And I, yeah, I think it's almost like you mentioned timing. It's almost like we do, we move from these strict parameters to just understanding more of the timing. But that's the thing is, that's not so easy to communicate in, you know, like right. a, like an hour podcast or a weekend course. It's things that take a lot of question asking and observation over time. Mm -hmm. And there's a huge intuitive aspect to coaching that over time, this probably is a good answer to your previous question is I've leaned in more to trusting intuition and not trying to outsource my coaching to what other people say is the right way to do it. Because as a coach, you have to know that you're the you're the one there with the athlete at that moment who's seeing what's happening, feeling, you know, as someone sprints by, you can feel what's going on. You have to trust in your own ability to sense what they need 
not just rely on, well, this, you know, famous coach said, this is what you need to do. So that's what I'm going to do. That can be a place to start to sort of explore the different options you have available to you. But to be the best coach you can be and to be the best athlete you can be, you have to be self-reliant. And that's trusting my intuition and being self-reliant is probably the biggest change that's happened over the last couple of years. Yeah, I think it's definitely that inflection point where a lot of that baseline information and all the questions asked starts to grow into intuition. It's it's one of the most fun and rewarding processes. And I know even for me, just when I go out and sprint these days, and I, I was always someone who jumped higher than I could sprint fast. So yeah. kind of like, uh, I don't know, and I, I don't know about reverse engineering, but looking at the process of why that was and just going out and sprinting and asking questions and feeling what my body wants to do. And that like process has been really enjoyable for me. I, I'm curious, Cody, what you've talked about, like some of the workouts that you did in the past and then, you know, your journey with uh, your very str- a strong individual. But I'm curious, what uh, what type of sprinter are you? Like, what's your general training that your body likes and how has that impacted your your coaching process in terms of like other athletes who might be like you or trying to find okay this athlete is not like me how do i work how do i start to develop coaching that might help them optimally uh, maybe start with what type of sprinter you are how do you respond to training well what have you learned about yourself and then we can branch out into how that has influenced folks who are like you and then folks who are yeah. a little bit different from you so I've noticed over time that the most consistent, if I put a certain type of training in my program that actually causes results, I would say short speed endurance work, flying sprints. Those are the sorts of things that I gravitate toward myself. I think I tend to do best in the middle to the late stages of a hundred meter dash, even though I'm strong, I've struggled with acceleration from the perspective of being inconsistent with acceleration performance. You know, there might be one day where I'm able to run a three, eight to the 30. And I'm like, wow, if I do that in a race, I'm going to run, you know, 10, four, but then the, the next week I'm running something like four, oh, you know, and it's just, that's always been, been troublesome for me. And acceleration, if I do too much of it tends to aggravate my sort of anterior lower abdomen hip region. Whereas when I do pure speed work, short speed endurance work, I find that it's probably the most potent stimulus for me. That leads to the most personal bests. And it's also very intense. So you can only do it so often. So I, I find that I do best in that. I don't know what that makes me as a sprinter. You know, I'm not the most elastic person, but I think that's just where my skills are able to, to really shine. And that's where I see my best flying splits and, and things like that. You know, I was able to run 281 from 60 to 90 a couple months ago. Whereas that's the same that I'm able to run from 30 to 60. So I'm able to maintain my speed very well. And that has influenced my coaching in that I see the importance of being able to maintain your speed and limit deceleration as it relates to 100 meter dash performance, 200 meter dash performance. And in learning to become better at speed endurance, I've had to learn things like not forcing stride frequency, but letting stride frequency occur locking in my posture in a certain position so that my legs can do their thing without disrupting my posture. Because once your posture gets disrupted, that next step is going to get screwed up and you're going to sort of fall apart from there. So in doing a lot of that short speed endurance work, I've had to really hone those skills. And it showed me the importance of that so that when I go and work with, say, the high school athletes, we do a lot of acceleration work. We do, you know, we don't do a whole lot of like 
we don't really do much special endurance work or those like really long grueling sprints but i like i try to get the concept across to these athletes that there's different phases of the sprint okay we're kind of in acceleration it's very intense very aggressive like Stu mcmillan talks about building pressure but at a certain point that pressure has to release and if you try to take the same approach to deadlifting or accelerating if you try to take that same approach in upright sprinting at 70 meters into the race you're probably going to fall apart and so as i've gone through that process of of really trying to hone my speed endurance because that's my strength and i try to play to my strengths it's helped me learn a little bit more about the dynamics of the race how the race progresses and then how to get those concepts across to athletes so that way they don't just you know get into upright sprinting and now all of a sudden all they're doing is pushing behind them and falling forward and over striding and those common issues that we see at say the high school level yeah, when I was, um, or a few podcasts ago, Richard Ashevas was talking about like, the physical, mental, and emotional components of training. And he was talking about the mental in terms of like a strategy. And his reference is more, he comes from the world of CrossFit, which I, I don't have a lot of CrossFit folk on this show, but <laughs> it's hard for me to like resonate, like in the sense of like, you know, what I've done. I'm like, I, I have no idea because I've never done those workouts, but he talks about like mentally, all right, I got to do this exercise, this many reps of this, this many reps of this, and you are kind of strategizing where you're going to put your effort. And you had mentioned like you're really strong. And I think anyone who's watched you train, like you look like a very, you look like, I'm sure you are as well, a very, a very strong individual. And I think a lot of times it'd be easy to peg you as like, ah, 60 guy, you know? Right. But I, what do you attribute and I don't want to make this like too much about track specifically. I, I wanted to be yeah. you know, general speed no as well. But I mean, I, I mean, I could talk 100 meters all day. Yeah, you know? yeah, um, for sure. But uh, I, I am curious, uh, you know, with your type, how much do you think that might be just your experience with just feeling like the rhythm of sprinting, understanding and feeling what it takes to maintain your speed and not to make the mistakes to get trapped in like, you know, a, a poor rhythm or too much pushing or things like that? You strike me maybe that you also, in addition to you know, having, you know, maybe you look like a 60 guy, but do you think that your ability to maintain your speed is at least partly your like maybe mental understanding of how to not lose speed, if that makes sense? Yeah, I think that's a significant part of it because since I haven't really had much coaching uh, and I've been self-coached, my understanding of speed endurance you know, if you understand something and you're trying to then like build that skill, the feedback loop there is a lot more effective than if you don't quite have the right concept and you're just training and repeating a bad pa- mm-hmm. pattern. You know, I think in acceleration, one thing that disrupted me over a long period of time was purely focusing on projection mm-hmm. and like the big shapes idea, because I think, and this is probably one reason why I'm pretty good at speed endurance is my stride length. I have good stride length abilities because of my strength and power, but I would focus so much on stride length in acceleration that I would either overstride or it would just be a little clunky and like take me a little while to get going. And then once I was going, my stride length would benefit me once I was in upright sprinting and my stride frequency caught up. So my my conceptual understanding of acceleration, where I needed to drive my leg into the ground or like the direction of force application. It took until probably this year to really understand what should be going on there. And whereas with upright sprinting, it just came a little bit more natural to me. And I had a better, for whatever reason, I just had a better conceptualization of 
what you need to do, like what the task is at hand of locking your posture in place, bouncing that foot off the ground and letting those legs spin without forcing the frequency. That has worked really well for me in upright sprinting. Because I was always doing the, you know, stride length dominant approach to acceleration, it just never quite worked out. This year, I've been able to tap into a slightly different approach to my technique with acceleration, and I've seen some good improvements. So I'm hoping that that can be something that can maybe unlock my strength and power abilities so that they can actually apply Mm -hmm. to acceleration. So maybe I will become more of the 60 guy over time (laughs) as that becomes something that I am better at doing and applying that concept. But I do think that having the conceptual understanding plays a huge role in what my skills have been with myself as a sprinter. Yeah. Going back to what you had said too about, I guess, kind of being very moving from more general to more specific. To me, Mm -hmm. it strikes me that that's part of it too, is it's very easy to say, well, just project, just go really far, you know, (laughs) and, or just, Hey, or even like though some coaches will do a drill. It's like, well, how far can you go on the first step? I mean, yeah, that's, a great jump drill, but you have to put your foot down and the back leg has to catch up, you know, like you'll exactly. I'll watch athletes who it is interesting to, I was just um, recording on someone else's podcast and I was talking about how one of the, a swim coach who I used to work with and observe, he would have the athletes actually do drills on land before they jumped in the water, but he wasn't necessarily telling them what to do. He would just observe what they were trying to do. He's like, what is their intention? And it's interesting to watch athletes in the blocks and look at what they're trying to do. Like some of them Mm -hmm. are trying to do what their coach told them and really get those arms split and really get out in that first stride. And then, but then you see that they're like burnt by five meters, like they are getting (laughs) killed. And, and, but then the question is, oh, well, they'll catch up later. Well, a little bit, but how much do you want to get burnt to trade that out? You know, like, like that's the question is. Because I, you know, I know you had, yeah, you had mentioned like getting that stride. Like I was just reading too, it was a study on, um, I think it was Jimmy Vico's coach who it was like uh, attributing that he, I think he had got farther on his first like eight steps or I don't know what the measure was, but basically like that he had projected more as his hundred time got better through the years. Since 2011, he was able to get out a little farther on his first few strides and it strikes me that somebody who's like maybe super muscular and very rotational, kind of like a, a football player running the 40 or maybe not even the 40, but someone who's just trying to get to 10 yards and has a lot of team sport speed, doesn't have a lot of patience, that that could be a great process if you're trying to run a faster 40, faster 100. Yep. But that only, like weightlifting, it's only going to go so far, you know, too. Like yep. <laughs> if you just take it to its extreme, well, now you're just taking something to its extreme and you aren't respecting all the timing that's happening in the middle. And that's like the beautiful part of the process. Exactly. And I think there's one aspect of acceleration that took me a while to sort of kind of get in my head is, you know, say you're only focusing on projection. Well, you launch your body out and your body accelerates. But there's a point at which your body, as it's traveling through the air, is going to start decelerating. And if we're not Mm -hmm. applying force soon enough, we're going to accelerate, decelerate, reaccelerate, decelerate Mm -hmm. like that. So where the timing comes in is you accelerate the body. And right when you reach that peak velocity, you should be applying force again. So you go boom, 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 as opposed to boom, 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 where it's like faster, slower, faster, slower. We want fast, faster, faster, faster. And so the timing of when you're hitting the ground, if you're only focusing on stride length and projection, you're going to miss that that point at which you can continue to accelerate the body before it slows down as it's flying through the air and hitting the ground. 
On the opposite side of the spectrum, if you're only focused on stride frequency, you may lack some force production each step. So when I've tried to just purely move as quickly as I can, I'm not as forceful. So it's a really tricky thing to to get that balance, but getting that balance is, you know, that's kind of the secret, I think. It is. Yeah. The longer I've been in this, it is that, you know, you can get Eastern philosophy, you know, Eastern mm-hmm. philosophical with it, but it is, there's a balance point to everything. And I think yep. to help you find it, it is nice to both maybe having the mistakes early in coaching or in your own training to have gone to those extremes. Sometimes yep. for me, even like if I'm just going out and doing fly 10, sometimes it's fun for me. I don't know. A lot of people probably don't find this fun, but I do. I like do like I'll run really tall like and just be as bouncy as I can. You know, like right. I'll be like a bouncy ball, which I'm pretty good at. And I'll see what my time was. And then I'll run really squatted and I'll see what my yep. time is. And I'll know how it felt. And it's like, OK, here's the poles, you know, yep. and a lot of people just don't go to the poles. It's just like, well, we'll hit this position. It's like, well, how do you know? It's the timing. And the only way to get the timing is actually to kind of had made the mistakes on both sides of the balance point. And then your body kind of figures it out over time. You know, it's, I think you had mentioned too, like with the, I think the things that attract a lot of people are those, like a big projecting shape. Like someone sees that on social media or something and, yeah, oh, looks that looks good. cool. <laughs> yeah. But but that person took an extra hundredth or whatever to actually get mm-hmm. their foot down and multiply that times a few steps. And that looking cool didn't actually get you <laughs> to the point you exactly. wanted to as, as quickly as you would have liked to. Yep. And that concept of experimenting on the at the poles or at the extremes is something that I try to incorporate in my training, where if an athlete isn't understanding a certain concept, I'll, I'll tell them, I say, OK, we're going to over exaggerate this. This is not mm-hmm. what I'm going to ask you to do when you go race. But I want you to feel what is the very extreme point mm-hmm. of this style of moving? What's the other extreme? And then we're going to come back and find a middle point that works for you. And so coaches who are out there, athletes who are out there, just like what Joel said, finding those extremes, whether in your case, it's tall versus squatted. It could be quickness on the first step versus projection on the first step, maximal projection versus maximal quickness, and then finding that middle point. By doing that, by finding those extremes, it opens up your your movement abilities and can get you out of stereotyped movements. And if you're just stuck in stereotyped movements, that's when your progress stalls. I wanted to take a quick minute to tell you about my story with our sponsor, Lost Empire Herbs. Several years ago, I had strongman and mental training expert Logan Christopher on the show and In the interview, I realized that Logan, in addition to deadlifting over 500 pounds and ripping phone books in half, also was the founder of an herbalism company. Long story short, I ended up ordering the Phoenix Formula, one of their flagship products. And in taking that, I noticed increased energy and a decreased reliance on coffee, which honestly, I was kind of expecting that. But what I didn't expect is after a few weeks, I noticed my weight room numbers had increased substantially. And the Phoenix formula also led me to getting shiliagit resin, which is found in the Phoenix formula and recommended by a lot of strength coaches, as well as other Lost Empire Herbs products. I've been using Lost Empire Herbs ever since, and I have sponsors of the show that I believe in, that I use, and that I want to share with you. So if you want to check them out, head to lostempireherbs.com slash just fly for 15% off my favorite Lost Empire Herbs products. You get a 365-day money-back guarantee. I really enjoy having Lost Empire Herbs as a sponsor of this show, and I hope you get a chance to check out what they have to offer. Let's get back to the podcast. 
Yeah, it's it is that exploration to me that is so much fun, and that it yep. really did spark. It was I, I think I've mentioned this story on this podcast. So I don't want to belabor it, but it was basically yeah. running over like mini hurdles, and it was like I don't know where I got this idea from exactly, but it was like do the first one as as tall as possible, then get a little more squatted, get a little more squatted on the second, third, fourth, fifth. And it was like, it was the mid one where I was like, man, I feel my glutes so much on this sprint, way more than when I was like as tall as I could, I only felt like my feet and just like spinning yeah. around in the air. Like I don't feel <laughs> yeah. anything. And yeah. it's like, and then I remember what it's like to feel, and then you think back to like maybe that for me, I, I didn't run the open hundred, but I ran on the four by one and stuff. I was like, this was what it was like to run that fast four by one, this yeah. middle thing. You know, that's what my body wanted to do. And what's your take, Cody, on, because I, I think this is interesting to me is like a lot of times those very over like projected positions those nice like pretty in the air positions i oh i look at this in the sense of rob gray who's i think arizona state so in your neck of the woods talks Mm -hmm. about uh, magnifying the air and sometimes i almost think of it all as like i don't know i think it'd be easy to sometimes say well you know if you do that you're just well you're just gonna do that in competition to run slow but i almost wonder if some athletes brains register that over exaggeration as that and then they get in competition they don't do that they actually just right. do the thing they're supposed to do <laughs> which i was yeah. i always find that interesting i was like well maybe the net worked itself out fine here but you know obviously it'd be better <laughs> to actually have a process behind it but yeah i don't know yeah, me your thoughts on that like people who because i'm sure you see sprinters all the time like they exaggerate running tall they exaggerate high knees when they're warming up and then they don't run like that so I'm curious to your take or any expanding on on that point of things. Yeah, I, you know, say in the warm up with our drills, for example, I try to get across like, okay, we're either working on managing our posture, having certain rhythmic qualities, or working on how we're contacting the ground. I try not to over exaggerate things too much in the drills, just because I don't want the athlete to have the wrong concept of what we're trying to achieve. I don't look at drills as something that will transfer significantly to sprinting. I just look at it as more of a, A, it's a good way to warm up. B, mm-hmm. just, just because it, it's a nice progression from lower velocity, lower intensity to more high intensity movements. But it's more to give, especially with the younger athletes or the athletes who haven't done a lot of pure sprinting, like maybe the football players who I work with, to give them some context for whatever I'm going to work on in that session or that I regularly work on in sessions from a technical standpoint, I try to use the drills as a way to give a little bit of context for what I'm trying to have them do at higher intensities. So it's sort of just to like hone in certain aspects of the technique. But yeah, I think, say you do a high knee run. Well, you're probably not going to go out and, and do that when you, when you run in a race. And if you do, you're going to run pretty slow. You know, I had one race in college where I don't know what I was doing. I think I took too much pre-workout and I was all stressed out or something. And, and I was, I looked at the film and my, my friend was at home watching it. He's like, dude, what did you do in that race? You're just like doing a high knee run the whole time. So I think you can, there's a point at which if you over-exaggerate too much and then you do do that in your race, obviously that's not going to be, be very good, but you also have to understand that like a drill, you're not doing a drill because it's going to make you faster. You're doing a drill to, work on one small concept to work on finding a certain feeling. And then we may try to take that feeling that you found into the sprint and try to replicate that, not try to replicate what the drill looks like. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's so. that's really important. Yeah, Seth Lintz, who's um, I think also from Arizona, or maybe he's maybe I think he might be on there. A pitching doctor. He was talking about that. It's, it's finding the feeling they can take with them, not the position. And I think yeah, exactly. back to what you said. It's like that's what everyone. That the easy thing is to take the position because I can line a bunch of athletes up and kind of have them do a certain position, but that doesn't. That's uh, a little bit different than finding and the feeling and. That feeling might register a little bit different for different athletes too, which is one of the cool things about it all, you know, like mm-hmm. versus as if, you know, it's not as much fun if we're all robots and things like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. With the robot, actually with the, the differences in athletes too, I wanted to ask you this because I think you had mentioned this, um, it might've been a, a message I saw of yours or something like where if you didn't do enough longer sprinting, then your, I think like your baseline speed and power maybe was negatively affected. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I've thought about for a long time. It's just athletes who just need a little bit more work or a little bit longer sprinting and, or as well as just who needs more work in, you could call it the upper, maybe that 15 to 40 second bracket of things mm-hmm. or making the hundred meter sprinter run the four by four a few times, yeah. you know, like that kind <laughs> yeah. of thing. It's just, I think it's so easy to get caught in that. Like, oh, we can only do speed. We can only do this short burst, but then there is that like really helpful kind of hand-in-hand complementary metabolic system. Um, mm-hmm. So just thoughts on for you personally with that and then how you look at that process with your athletes, who might need more, who might need less, and how you go about that. For sure. So I think there's a couple layers within this onion. Part of it is I don't do too much very intense long sprinting. We did a lot of that in college and it worked for a while and then I completely blew up. So I'm very conscious of the risks of doing, you know, 450s every Monday when you're racing a 60 on Friday. But I think that there's a skill development aspect of longer runs where simply by virtue of having more steps, you're doing more reps of the specific skill. So from a skill development standpoint, how much skill can you develop if you're doing three fly tens and you're taking however many steps at speed, that's not a very significant exposure to the skill that you're trying to develop. So with things like whether it's the short speed endurance or it's running 150s fast or it's doing repeat tempo runs at 60%, there's something to be said for taking a larger number of steps within a workout and that being able to influence your skill, whether that's how you strike the ground, how you recover your legs, how you move your arms, how the arms affect torso rotation or how even from like i interviewed dan bach on i have a little podcast with a whopping two episodes (laughs) and when i interviewed him we talked about how tempo endurance training can be used for developing elasticity because you're doing a whole bunch of plyometric contacts at not a super high intensity level but just getting the volume of those contacts can help with elasticity now i do have some athletes who if i have them run six 150s at 60%, their body's hurting, they're falling apart, they're not able to handle it. So there are athletes who simply, maybe it's just where they are in their development. So eventually they might be able to handle it, but at the current point in time, they can't quite handle it. You know, so it's not a, it's not something you can necessarily apply to every single athlete, but I think I know for me, I had periods of time where the only training I did was up to maybe 60 meters. So I was doing pure acceleration, speed, strength, and power. It improved some of my sprinting, but I was not a complete athlete. I was not a complete, well-put-together sprinter who could go out and compete competitively in, in the 100 or the 200. 
Whereas when I have included some amount of tempo endurance, some amount of like the 120 to 180 range speed endurance training, then I become a much more put together athlete. And if I can go out and do three by 120 and be running, you know, good times in those, I know that I'm ready for the hundred. If all I've been doing are, you know, thirties, forties, and sixties, it's, it's not gonna, it's not gonna work out very well. So if you're like me, who you love speed work, you love acceleration work, and you're used to seeing people do the, you know, 10 by 400 workout and you look at that, oh, it's stupid. Okay. Yeah, that might be, but that doesn't mean you can't do anything on that spectrum. You know, you just have to find the distance that is appropriate for that athlete, but you should push them to get into a little bit of fatigue. You know, Dan, Dan Paff talks about how under fatigue, skill development can actually be improved. So whether it's the elasticity, whether it's the general conditioning, whether it's the number of reps you get, number of steps you get, or the skill development aspects of being fatigued, there's something to be said for using some form of longer sprinting in your training. And it's not something to be afraid of. You just have to use it. Just don't go overboard with it, you know, and don't, it's one thing to do an intense long sprint or a couple of them, or to do a good amount of lower intensity, longer sprints, where the issues arise is if you're doing a high volume of high intensity, long sprinting, mm -hmm. that's the thing that I think is usually misapplied to athletes. Yeah. I, I like there's been coaches who have talked about like longer, well, in endurance, I'll start here. As I know in endurance, mm -hmm. it's a little bit different world, but people will talk about, well, the long, getting the mileage in will build your technique because right. your body will adapt to the, the needs of the mileage. Mm -hmm. And I think about running and I know there have been coaches who talk about speed endurance work helping to build technique. And I, I think that that's, there is an important distinction to make with that because yeah, if I'm doing 10, to 10 400s, the technique you're going to get for the vast majority of athletes doing 10 400s is yeah. not going to be a technique you want. But yeah. uh, 6 150s or 8 150s, and you can maintain your sprinting rhythm throughout, I think now you have something that is a lot more impactful. And you're building, I look at that too along the lines of elasticity. I, I look at it kind of the way, it is funny, like uh, track coaches talk about over distance stuff as strength. And it's like, well, how is that strength? But I do feel yeah. like... <laughs> Like a six by one fifty and eight by one fifty fast is you you feel the type the specific type of strength because it's a lot of contacts at a pretty quick contact time way faster than plyometrics for the most part yep. that is building a level of specific strength and then that can oftentimes show up in your technique way better than a sprint drill or someone telling you to do something because mm -hmm. you've kind of simultaneously integrated this and that's I I, I hope I'm not. I don't like to do rabbit trails or rants, but it is something I think about a lot in that it, it's almost like there's always going to be the over technical people mm -hmm. like where it's like very, just very much in, in the and technique is good, but you can't have technique without a structural backing, like a base no. layer of function. And to me, it's like, you know, how simple is it just to do a little bit of good quality, a little bit longer running that you have a good rhythm. And your body's going to adapt on a lot of levels to that, not just technique and not just structurally, but a little bit of a combination of both. Yeah. And it's hard to, or it would be unwise to overlook the fact that so many athletes who perform at a very high level do a significant amount of longer sprinting in some form. And so 
if that is something that is present in a lot of really high performing athletes programs, I would argue more so than athletes who only do speed and acceleration that then that's something you have to look at. And, you know, on the ground contact time thing, I made a video about it, looking at how if I do a tempo run 70%, something like that, my ground contact times are still 0.11. So it's really quite close to the ground contact times we're going to see in sprinting, even though the horizontal velocity is slower. So you're still working a pretty specific skill, even though it's not super fast and it's less, it's just generally less taxing as long as you don't go crazy with the volume. And sometimes I find that running at a submaximal pace, like, you know, I know the 80% rule is the whole something that you do have to be somewhat careful of, but it feels really good to run at 85%, yeah. 80% and to just stride out a 150 at that pace. And so as a coach, you have to try and consider what are your biases and how might your biases be blinding you to something that can be beneficial. And so I've tried to stay open-minded with that. And, you know, I, I've always been pretty bad at like cardio and stuff like that. I'd really bad asthma when I was a toddler and I would, you know, when we do the mile run in PE, I'd be at the back of the pack, but then I beat everyone in sprinting. So I don't, I don't like, you know, doing cardio or whatever. It, it hurts. It's mm-hmm. <laughs> not fun, but when I do it, I tend to be a better athlete, you know, whether I'm doing my tempo runs, I tend to run better in my, in my speed work and I tend to feel better overall as an athlete. So you just got to stay open-minded and be willing to to dabble in things that are slightly outside of your, what you view as the optimal way to train, I think. Yeah. For me, a lot of that has been seeing what happens to me when I historically have gotten too far away from just like playing basketball or pickup basketball or heck, even like ultimate Frisbee. Cause nowadays I'm 39. When I play those sports, I notice how much more my body is pushing and it is, you know, it's, it's not like running six by one fifties exactly, but it's not, it'd be kind of like the stimulus I get doing that stuff. I'd have to say it's kind of like running maybe like, yeah, five or six one fifties, but then with a bunch of like line hops in between or something, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, but it's, exactly. but it's, but it's really like, but it's also incredibly engaging and I don't even notice that my body is pushing as hard. And for me, I know, for, and I think for me, maybe even more than some other people, my, how I perceive that process too has been really helpful. Like I, I don't know. I don't know where I am on the fast twitch, slow twitch scale exactly. I think I'm somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. But when I, I know playing high school basketball and doing things that were actually pretty demanding, but variable were really good for me. But then when I got to college and just did like a bunch of 200s, 300s, 400s, and just, you know, very just straightforward, that type of work, that was not good. Like I, yeah. I did, you know, you could count all the steps up and it's, probably kind of similar but it was just Mm -hmm. the stimulus was so different and i was a type of person that i don't know put some hurdles in the way or you know i gotta you know it always just kind of keyed me into you know the nuances of that stimulus i i know one year as well i remember when i was coaching back at wilmington i decided i was always at a little bit of a battle um the head coach always wanted me to do more like more volume for the 400 runners and i was always like ah you know for me intuitively i always like anytime they were doing more than i would feel comfortable with for me personally it's like no i shut it down you know yeah. and, and some <laughs> people did need to do more you know yeah <laughs> but i remember one falls like all right fine we'll we'll do and god we basically did like the clyde hart jr <laughs> you know we mm-hmm. started running like two by 800, then two by 600, and then, you know, the 500s, and then kind of scaling down throughout the fall and like that kind of thing. And actually at the December meet and the early meets, that was actually the worst sprinting that 
select group of athletes did. It was, I was like, all right, well, I think I went too far there. Like that didn't work. So I, I I, I'm curious where you, where you tend to land with, maybe I can take it here as like, what's the most you would do for, uh, let's say, I mean, I guess 400, I, Again, I kind of want to make it more specific to anybody, but maybe we could talk 100 or 200 because that's, you know, speed. And so that's, that's cool. Mm-hmm. But like, what's the most you would look to do for like an athlete in that 100, 200 realm for how much running you would max them out on? Yeah, we usually when I'm programming, if it's a say it's a tempo workout. If they're more advanced athletes, my range will be, you know, eight to 12 runs between 120 to 180 meters. It's kind of where I max out there with the high school athletes six to nine by 150 is probably the the biggest volume that we do if we're doing fast sprints i might go out to 180 to 20 but i don't do a lot of over distance work at like race pace intensity you know for example with the 400 athletes i probably peak out around 320 because my opinion is whatever we do up to that point once you get to that point, the the monkey is always going to jump on your back mm. and it's kind of a, a mental battle from there. And if you're running enough 400 races, you're going to be exposing yourself to that specific distance of the 400. So I'd rather work on, you know, I'd rather do a 320 with race modeling and then follow it up with maybe a 250 or something like that, continuing to incorporate the race model and let the racing build that last bit of, you know, specific conditioning or whatever. So most of the time I look at what is the longest that they're going to run. I'll shorten it up a little bit and that'll be the the limit of our high intensity work. And we only do a few reps when we're doing that stuff. So we might do three by 120 for the short sprinters or, you know, 150, 120, 90. If someone's really more of a 200 athlete, we might go up to 180, 150, 120, those sorts of workouts. And I find that that's the limit of quality where if they're running at a high enough intensity, any more than those few runs, things are going to start to fall apart. That doesn't mean that's the only thing we do in the session. We might start with some drop-in accelerations or do a flying sprint just to make sure they're ready to rock and roll on those speed endurance reps. But I've even experimented with, say we're doing an acceleration session, I'll just finish with one 150 or one by 90. So that way, I'm incorporating speed endurance throughout a larger portion of the year, but the dose is not very high because it's such a potent stimulus that the dose doesn't need to be Mm. high. So I try to consider that, you know, like I had a session last week with our 400 crew where it was, they did three times 50 meters from the 400 start where it's all out as fast as you can possibly run. Then we followed up with a 250 where it was, okay, we're doing the same thing. We're getting out as hard as we can to that point, but then we settle into the float phase of the 400. So now we're working race modeling. We have a little bit of speed and then we finish up with that special endurance type of rep. And over time, that 250 will turn into a 280, a 300, a 320, maybe a 350 if someone uh, is just looking really good to 320. And I think, okay, we can push it out further because they're able to maintain their technique. Fine. We'll, we'll push it out a little bit, but I try to, I try to limit the distance of those intense sprints and the less intense sprints to their technical limit Mm. if you cannot maintain your technique beyond that point i do not want to hang out there i would rather hang out over that distance that you can maintain your technique and do it more times 
in hopes that that will extend your ability to maintain technique deeper into the sprint rather than throwing a distance at them where half of it is done with really poor quality and it's just defeating and demoralizing for them because the mental side of it is huge. If they can knock out a 320 and a 250 and feel like they killed it, well, when they go into race the 400 that weekend, they're probably going to feel pretty confident in themselves. Same with running a fast 150. If you can blast a fast 150, I mean, you can probably maintain pretty well through the end of that. And by racing and going through competitions, and you know, the high school and college seasons are a lot of competitions. So there's a lot of opportunities to train that specific distance in meets. Then I think as long as they have the confidence and they can get 75 to 80%, maybe 90% of that distance in practice, they're going to be fine in competition. And we're not going to blow anybody up in that process. Today's episode is also brought to you by Strength Coach Pro. Strength Coach Pro is an online digital training portal where personal trainers, strength coaches, and gym owners can create training programs and distribute them to their clients both in the in-person space and online. The software is fast and versatile. You can quickly tell that it was created by a coach for coaches. One of the best things about it is that there's no recurring fees. There is one fee and you get lifetime access to the program. And to check out what Strength Coach Pro can do for you, head to strengthcoachpro.com. That's strengthcoachpro.com. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, that fits a lot with when Tony Holler was on the podcast last. A lot, a theme that really came up throughout the talk was basically letting the emotion of the meat like carry you to that increased like distance. You know, like exactly, like basically, you don't. Which is almost counterintuitive because so many people want to be like, oh, well, I worked harder in practice and so now I'm ready for the meet. Well, it's like, well, you got, maybe you got really good at getting the shit kicked out of you at practice. And, but that's maybe not the thing you want to take to the meet. Like, you know, take in practice, winning the workout and being really fast. (laughs) And then let the emotion of the meet take you the rest of the way. And he talked about that with the state meet too. Like every time that they, train for the state meet or something like if they tried to train for the state meet by doing back-to-back dual meets or something mm-hmm. that that never worked out that well down the line and i think if you look at it from a purely mechanistic or a machine-based model it makes sense well we need to train this way but then the problem is you're divorcing like the emotion like like richard Chavis talked about that mental and emotional element because that is important and I've seen it so many times. I mean, I worked in swimming. I didn't actually coach swimming. I would like to actually coach swimming, but I worked in the strength. (laughs) But I was blown away. I mean, these guys have four-day meets, and they're swimming in morning and a.m. and p.m. each of those four days. And although some people do get cooked a little bit throughout, more often than not, you're seeing really fast swims on that third and fourth day. And I think if it was just a like, and this is like the conference of the national meet, especially, but I think if it was just a ho-hum, like, you know, regular old week, like that would suck, but because yeah. it's nationals, like your body can, can generate it, you know? And yep. so I, I just think that's such an important thing that we don't often look at enough is, is how do we want to win this workout? How, or, you know, through speed and feeling good about the speed, not through being able to get beat on more because <laughs> that doesn't exactly. work for me. You know, being able to get beat on more is not yielded the fastest running at the meets. Yeah. The, and, and confidence and mental, emotional states. Once I'm in the competitive season, a big part of my job becomes managing those, those confidence levels and the, the mental, emotional side of the athlete, because I have athletes who are very capable of running much faster times, but when they get in their own head, 
all of a sudden they're a completely different athlete. And so, yes, the physical development needs to be there, but if we can build up a huge volume of wins in practice, of feeling good in practice, feeling confident in our abilities, not being defeated on a regular basis, then that's what's going to lead to them feeling good in competition and being able to express their abilities. What's your take, Cody, if athletes come to you or if this does happen and they might ask for more work? Does that ever happen with you? I mean, it, it's happened. All the time. Okay. Yeah. What do you do there? Just because I'm curious, how do you help <laughs> them feel like, you know, hurt or like they're getting what they might need with giving them what they actually need or what they maybe need a little more of? But I'm just curious how you, you know, work with that balance of things. Usually I just explain that, look, there's a, there's a sequence. I build out the week or I build out the cycle so that each day feeds into the next to prioritize the important workouts of the week. If on today we do more, we're going to sacrifice your ability to put out good work on this day or that day, or we're going to, you know, make you more likely to have shin splints or, you know, feel tired when we're planning to do a speed workout in two days. Well, I don't want to blast you with too much today and then, you know, ruin that workout. So I try to just get it across to the athlete that, look, I'm trying to have the best amount of training that we can have over this period of time, you know, over a month or over a season. And so we don't want to do so much today that we then negatively affect the more important work we're going to do on another day. Or if someone runs, you know, a really fast time in practice and I tell them, okay, it's time to shut it down. I'll be like, look, what do you want your body to remember? Your fastest rep? Or do you want it to remember the slower rep? And if if we say I have the free lap out there and we're timing sprints and someone runs a really good, you know, 70 or something like that, it's like, well, how are they going to feel if they come back and run two tenths slower? That's probably going, even if it was faster than they ran, you know, last year or something like that, it's probably going to, that's going to stick with them. So I try to get across too that, you know, look, we want you to feel good. We want your body to remember that best rep. So when you hit that best rep, we might shut it down and say, okay, that's done. Other times, if we're further away from competition, we have a little bit more time to put in some work. Yeah, we're going to dig a little bit deeper and, and push you to the point where you do slow down a little bit because we're challenging the body to repeatedly put these high intensity efforts out. But just getting across why I'm doing it and why it's going to benefit them in the long term, that typically works. And then I don't really run into any issues from there. If someone just can't get over the fact they need to do more work, then I throw in low intensity stuff like line hops or, you know, maybe, uh, I don't know, med ball throws or a heavy resisted pull on the exergeny or something that is, I know is going to be a little bit lower cost, but it allows them to feel like they're doing more work. I'll just try to find those things that have a better cost benefit ratio uh, so they can feel like good because some athletes do need a lot of work to feel confident. So you have to be able to identify which athlete is going to be going to be in a better mental and emotional state because of the performance that they put out. And they need to not do that, that extra rep most of the time versus the athlete who feels confident when they feel like they've done a lot of work. Then I'll throw something else at them to whether that is another rep, whether that's a different exercise, just so that that aspect of confidence can be fulfilled as well. Yeah. I like to like doing something else that's because you think about, okay, how much of what you're asking for is physiological, truly physiological? Like, are you a you know intermediate type? You need a few more reps or something? Right. Or is it mental? Like you were maybe raised that you need to work hard yeah. to be validated, you know, and obviously hard work is a good thing. But 
it makes me think, well, if it's, if it's all just a lot of it is more mental than maybe physiological. Yeah. Hey, just go do this five minute ISO lunge or something. Yeah, you know? exactly. Go, go do something there. You get the feeling, but it's the cost, the recovery cost is so low, you know, like that you can just plug those. In. I, I think about that because I, um, for the next time, I mean, I know you coach like high school track and I've been, I'm looking to start getting into that world myself and versus just individuals that it's a yep. lot more of a conversation. You know, it's like, I'm trying to prepare myself for if this athlete comes up to me and asks for this, I'm like, all right, <laughs> like, here's, here's what I got for you. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, you said something too about, I like this and I think, you know, people listening were rather, you know, this is a very more of a track based conversation, but you know, speed and power is universal, but you mentioned finishing an acceleration session with a fast 150 or a 90. And I've seen studies done on finishing like low rep lifting sessions with like a drop set. So maybe you did three by three, but you finished with a drop set of 12. Or I know Ryan Bracius, who's been on the show with the one by 20 round table a long time ago, he ran like a, like a five, three, one, but then finished with the, the 20. Like that was his mm-hmm. one by 20 is start with what the athletes kind of want and then give them that drop set. But I think about that too. It's like the, like the metabolic element, I think like adds can very strongly add to everything you just did as well. Like even like, yes, with the endurance for sure. But I've, I've felt like too, at least, you know, for me and then in my programming that adding some of that stuff, it's like a chemistry set. Like it actually can, it can actually even make you stronger. Like it, 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 endurance almost aside, like just finishing mm-hmm. with something that gets into that metabolic system that kind of can infuse some of that more metabolic process of muscle than not just, I guess, more strictly neurologic. I mean, it's not strictly anything, but you know yeah. what I'm saying? So yeah, just well, curious for, on that. For sure. Your thoughts on that. Yeah. It, yeah. I, I would agree. I think there is a, a metabolic aspect there involved that if you're not tapping into that, if you only do thirties and you never do a one fifty, well, you're probably going to have a tough time when you go run something over, you know, <laughs> 60 meters. I also think that there's, you know, when we train, we're flipping switches in the body. We flip the light switch on and then that light goes on. We may not need to flip so many switches in a workout. Maybe we only need to do one, you know? So the diminishing returns effect kicks in to where you can get a lot out of doing one rep where you're going to flip those switches in the body. You're going to cause those adaptive processes to kick in because the stress is higher. And I think you can you can benefit a lot from that and you don't need to jump to doing the three by one fifty workout right away. You know, you can just micro dose it in. So you're stimulating the body telling it, Hey, we need to be prepared for this, but you do that one good rep, maybe two reps and you shut it down. And that's enough to get those processes, get the signaling in the body to, to get better at handling those more metabolic stressing type of activities but without having a, a huge effect on how long it's going to take to recover, you know, be, it'll be a lower injury risk to just do one rep. So for example, this, this winter, I ran a 150 meter personal best or in 1594. And leading up to that, I had only done micro dose speed endurance. Mm. Most of my training was acceleration and speed and some tempo, but by doing just one rep at the end of the workout, I had the feeling of running a fast 150 being able to go through that distance and have the different, you know, segments of that race built into, into my system, but without being super taxing. And it led to me running, you know, four tenths faster in the 150 than I ever had before in a meet. So that's where it's like, you don't want to neglect any aspect of the system. You know, it's just a matter of how much of any Mm -hmm. 
aspect of the system are we doing at any given time? And you can work on building certain parts of the system, like the metabolic side or the the skill endurance, because speed endurance is not just metabolic. It's also being able to repeatedly put your foot down in the right spot, maintain your posture the whole way. You can build those skills without a whole lot of work. And then it gives you the ability to progress over time, as opposed to if you go straight from, all right, we were doing acceleration and speed. Now in this new cycle, we're doing a speed endurance session. Well, where do you go from there? How do you progress that over the next cycle? Whereas if you microdose it into the speed and acceleration work, now you can build up to doing a couple more. And then eventually that turns into its own day and it gives you more progression options as well. I love that. It's like starting, really starting from a place of power and then yep. adding in the speed endurance as, as needed, as tolerated yep. versus- Exactly. And as they're capable. Yeah. I like that. I, it makes me think too about just running the, <laughs> the running the four by four, like as a jumper, like, Hey, go run the four by four. Well, I'm a high jumper, you know, but, but just, <laughs> just one, it's only one, you know, if exactly. I had to run two, like I've been, that would have messed me up probably, but I, yeah. it never was a bad thing. I think it was actually mentally getting over that too. Like, I, I think I always had this thing in high school where I'm like, Oh, like the four by four, it's so much lactate and yeah, it's yeah. going to mess you up. But it's Scary. like, you know what, like running that with your teammate, like your teammates and the group there. And it's kind of like that. It almost like the emotional correspondent. I almost feel like if you didn't have the, the group environment, it'd be kind of like running a fast 300 or 320 in practice or something. But when yep. you get the group there, the way you perceive it, it just kind of changes things. And it, it does make me think, you know, this is a track oriented episode, but I imagine there's probably a lot of options too. If I was working with a team sport, like just the finisher, you know, I mean, yeah, there's something cool about just that. And just, just like a low rep, super intense. Hey, let's, there's something that's, I think, powerful just to that finisher mentality. And so regardless of whether it's track or uh, a weight room session or something you're doing on the field for training, I, I think that the finisher is definitely something that I don't hear people talk about it that much anymore. You know, it's, yeah, no, <laughs> I, I agree. Yeah. But I think there's a lot of value to it and you can, say with the athletes who do need a little bit more work, maybe that one rep is that is enough to, to sort of get them to feel like, yeah, I, I worked hard today, but you as a coach know that they didn't work too hard to yeah. the point where it's going to disrupt their ability to sprint or lift in the ne- or jump in the next couple days, you know? Yeah. Like maybe instead of, Hey, you know, everyone's finishing with the 150. The the person who's like just coming to you begging for more work. All right, you can run a 250 or something. Exactly. Or, yeah. Know, something but like it's that. low risk. Cause it's, it's just one. And all they need to do in the meet is usually that one, maybe two, Mm -hmm. if they're doing the 400 and the four by four or the two and the four by four. But what are we preparing for? And always keep that in mind. We're not preparing to go run 10 races every, every meet, you know, so you don't need to just beat someone over the head all the time. Yeah. Kind of rounding down Cody. So you had mentioned that you, you know, very strong now, like in your work and, you actually ended up taking that probably a little bit too far. Uh, and I'm yep. curious what your take is on the general aspects of the weight room for speed. And then some of your favorite, like special strength or specific strength or, or as specific as you can get in the gym. Cause yeah. we all know it's not, it's never going to be sprinting, but thoughts on that general and specific nature uh, within the gym. Yeah. So over time with myself, with athletes I've worked with, and then just people who I interact with based on having a significant reach on online, I see people fall into the trap of only sticking to, you know, powerlifting oriented type type lifting. I think that there's some people do just need to get stronger. Like they're just, they're straight up weak and mm-hmm. they can't handle the forces involved in sprinting. So they need to get stronger. 
but you know, last year I did a deep squat of 405 and probably could have done two reps or three reps there based on how it felt. And during that time, I was running slower in acceleration than I had in, in multiple years. And that made me start to really think about what are the, you know, there's the, there's force. Okay. But if you're not considering force within the time constraints of your event and the time constraints within which you have to produce force, and all you look at is peak force, just like only looking at peak velocity on a bar velocity sensor, that's not going to tell you the whole, the whole story. You know, so one of the things that I've in talking to Rolf Oman and listening to Randy Huntington and then just going back to the sort of the concept of intuition and things that I always felt internally, but I sort of avoided because the big names and strength and conditioning weren't promoting it is how can I target short duration rate of force development, both eccentrically and concentrically in the gym? And what do I need to do to achieve that? Because a lot of the times people just think about what are the adaptations happening in the muscle tissue or in the, you know, tendon tissue. But I look at the weight room as not only a way to develop those tissue qualities, which are very important, and there's a time for that, but it's also a place where you can work on, I guess you could say the more neurological side of force production. So one thing that I've switched to is there will be times where I'm doing more of like a general prep accumulation type of phase where it's larger ranges of motion. Loads are pretty heavy. The movement's pretty slow. Just building that base of handling load through a good range of motion, getting more of that tissue stimulus. But then I like to switch to shorter ranges of motion where the emphasis is on the reversal of the load. So, or in a step up, it might be, you know, what's happening in that first 100 or 200 milliseconds of the lift. And that's what I care about because I believe that the ability to generate force in early phases of movement is a skill that can be developed. And it's not going to be developed fully if the only way you're working on that is sprinting. So, and this is going to vary with the level of athlete, obviously with the high school sophomores or whatever, I'm not going to be doing the same things that I'm doing with myself as a 31 year old with a, a high training age, but the concepts can still be incorporated where if you're doing a hex bar deadlift without, when I'm with the kids, I'm instructing them that the most important part of that lift is when it leaves the ground and how quickly are we getting it to leave the ground? I don't necessarily care about what happens in the top half of the lift. If anything, I want them to relax into the top mm -hmm. half of the lift because I don't want to train the body to hold on to contractions in sprinting in, in sports in general. If we look at the old Soviet research, what is the biggest differentiating factor between the elite athletes and the super elite athletes, the master of sport, as they called them. It was not the speed of muscle contraction. It was the speed of relaxation of antagonist muscles. If I drive my knee forward with my hip flexor, but my glute is firing at the same time in the opposite direction, my leg is not going to swing very fast. And if all we do is really high force, long time under tension work, we're going to train the body to just hold on and not be able to switch between contraction and relaxation cycles. So when I'm lifting and I'm in a phase of intensification or I'm in a phase where I'm trying to really prepare myself for competition, instead of doing, say, half squats at a moderate pace, I might do a pretty shallow quarter squat where I'm picking my feet up off the ground. I'm dropping as fast as I can. Right when my feet hit the ground, I'm trying to reverse that load as, as fast as possible. 
So there's probably a little bit of an overspeed eccentric moment happening. And then I'm trying to generate as much force as I can in the very early phase of that lift. And then I'm trying to relax and shut everything off because I want to fire everything at once and then have it all relax. Because I think that that that's a quality that is relevant to sprinting, that's relevant to moving fast on the field. And if all you ever do is five sets of five grinding squats, you're never going to develop that quality. And if the only place you're developing that is in sprinting or in agility work or those sorts of things, I think that you're leaving something on the table. And I know that a lot of people will disagree with that. And that's fine. I'm, I'm open to there being other ways to do it. But the way that my brain works and the way that I see and perceive movement in sprinting based on my own experience as a sprinter and what I've seen work with athletes that I, that I help out, there's room on the table to improve that reactivity and that ability to just fire everything in that very brief moment in time. So I might be doing, I might start with an eight inch step up where it's more of a push step up and I'm just pushing up a little bit slower movement. Then I might progress to a step up where I'm kind of stomping the box and my focus is on the instant that my foot hits the box. And that's the most important aspect for me. Or when I do the squats, when I drop, the most important part of that lift is the reversal because that's the time where you're working on how rapidly are we producing force. And the more rapidly we can produce force, the better off we're going to be on the track or on the field. Um, so I have a, a, I pay a lot of attention to rate of force development metrics and find that that has transferred well for me as an athlete. And I've seen it transfer pretty well uh, for the high school athletes too. I just don't go as intense with the loading. We take the mm -hmm. same approach of trying to develop the skill and the dynamic of the lift just at a, low, a lower absolute and relative load. Yeah. I like, I like what you mentioned with the hex deadlift too. It is, it's kind of funny because it's one of those things, you know, back to like, I think what we saw or did early on in the strength and conditioning industry. It's like triple extension, go all the way through yep. or, yeah. <laughs> or you put a, even you could peg um like a VBT device and then you got people jumping like hex bar jumps. Right. And it's, yeah, I mean, from being a perspective of general power, sure. But what's interesting is that I think I, I forget if it was someone's anecdotes or some study, but it was something to the tune of when you actually do a lot of weighted jumps, you're standing vert. Right, and definitely a running vert gets worse <laughs> mm -hmm. and because that that like quick impulse is now taken out over a longer period of time but it was uh i think it was just spending enough time with a darien bar i just started naturally doing my hex bar deadlifts that way because i was just kind of noticing muscle contractions and it was like mm -hmm. all right once i get this thing about four or five inches off the ground my glutes basically did their job you know like exactly. it, it's as per what my body would do in the run or whatever it, that job has been done. And what you see so often is people, I would just call it like that straining, willing mindset where it's like, yeah. or you see people like squeeze their glutes at the top and lock it yeah. out. You know, it's like, I don't think that's going to necessarily kill you, but doing a lot of that is going to change the way you kind of operate a little bit over time, you know, and, you know, unless you're just doing a lot of running to wash it out. <laughs> and yep. I, I, yeah, I, I agree. I think that like just quick twitch impulse. I know for me, I'm, you know, I, I'm a, a narrow infrasternal angle, kind of a yeah, high jumper, narrow rib cage mm -hmm. type. And I, my limit with heavy lifting is it, it's helpful in short spurts, but if I do it a lot, I start to lose stride length. And I found that lighter weight oscillating like reps or just doing quick twitches like that yep. for uh, my frame has been really helpful and kind of feeds to the same thing. You're just hitting the impulse. It's like I, I'm, exactly. I'm working with the impulse 
And I think it'd be this kind of hit me just now as you were talking. It'd be really a cool progression would be, and I I, I do do this actually on some level, and I've did in the past with like speed half squats working into regular squats or whatever. But mm-hmm. going oscillating into like oscillating is your base phase, and yep. then you eventually get to just all out impulse bursts, like single bursts, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like teaching you how to hit those. So uh, exactly, and and there's just briefly. One of the most common technical issues that I deal with is over pushing yeah. to where when their foot comes off the ground, they continue to extend their hip, even though they're not in contact with the ground. And if you're not in contact with the ground, what are you, what business do you have <laughs> extending your hip? We extend our hip to apply force to the ground. Once your foot is off the ground, we need to be switching to hip flexion mm-hmm. instantaneously. And the elite sprinters out there, they do that very well. So when I see someone doing that, if I then go in the gym and everything I'm doing is promoting that bad habit that they have of just like, you know, backside mechanics are fine, but there's a difference between good backside mechanics versus Mm -hmm. continuing to stay in extension by holding your glutes, you know, contracting your glutes when that leg needs to be swinging to the front side. So if I see that technical issue very commonly on the track, and then I go into the gym and I just reinforce that hanging on to the contraction you know how can i expect them to get much better at going from pushing to then reorienting the leg to the front side so they can strike the ground you know i'm probably going to run into issues there so i think it's just something to really keep in mind that how long you hold on to a contraction can take away from your ability to sprint and with sprinters who haven't been developed very much that's a very common issue that I see just holding on to extension and then falling into the ground or overstriding <laughs> or, or that sort of thing. Yeah. It makes me think about the you know, back when David Weck was on a long time ago, he cracked me up. We was talking about like the cue just push in general. He's like, it's so slow. It's like push, like it's yeah. like a longer <laughs> syllable or something. Yeah. And I, I do, you know, I've talked with coaches. I've never used that cue push the ground away. I've heard people talk about it, but to me, it strikes me that, it, I, I'm curious what your take is on it, but to me, it strikes me that it might be most useful for people who are good at pushing in squats in the gym. But then it's like, well, that's only going to get you so far because at some point you have to learn to be more cyclical and mm-hmm. maybe for a 10 or a 20 yard dash and you're a football player and you're good at squatting, maybe you resonate with that. I've always just loved the impulse related ideology. Yeah. And so I've really thrived on that. But I am curious of your take on that cue and you ever used it or if you notice it works well with anybody or just you know just curious with that one uh it only works well when i see people who are really uh, they're being kind of dainty with their movements or they're just Mm kind of like they're not reaching their full range of motion in the sprinting motion you know like what Mm -hmm. what they can achieve they're not doing it and they're just taking these little tiny steps sometimes it helps with that but usually i find that it makes their sprinting worse and so yeah yeah. i think a lot of the coaches who have pushed the push cue come from environments where they're getting really good athletes they can say yeah push and they're going to do it because they're just good athletes and they're going to sprint well regardless whereas with the athletes who just aren't that skilled it doesn't i don't find that it works very well so i don't i don't tend to use it a lot unless i see someone who is just I just know that they're not getting as much out of each step as they can. So then I might say, okay, we need to we need to launch ourselves. We need to really, really feel that push happen. 
but oftentimes it just leads to them over pushing mm-hmm. and then stomping the next step. And so then I'm like, all right, well, that's not going to work. So usually I focus more on like how you said impulse, you know, I'm trying to get across to them that there is a very brief moment in time that all of our effort, all of our energy needs to be directed into that remarkably brief moment. So I try to get that across to them because I think how, like how David said something to the effect of push being a long, slow cue. It's the same reason why I, I almost never say drive your knee. Drive your knee is super slow. I'd rather say let your knee float to the front side because that's a little bit more like relaxed and, mm-hmm. you know, it just sort of happens. But yeah, I, I don't, I personally don't find push the ground away from you or push to be all that effective for a lot of athletes. Works for some, but it's just not a, it's not what it's made out to be, I think. Yeah. Like you said, it could very easily uh, like rob Peter to pay Paul. You know, you get exactly. a little bit more on the backside or something, but then it just takes a long time to get around. And yeah, I'm, it's, uh, you know, talking about just the the whole conversation, just like that balance point idea. It's like balance and impulse. You know, if you can master yep. those ideas, I, I just think that's so powerful. So, um, man, I, I know I have a lot more questions, Cody, but I think we'll, <laughs> we'll shelve it there. We'll save it for uh, hopefully a part two down the road. But before um, we get out of here, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with you and your work, but where do people find you uh, if they want to learn more about what you're doing? Uh, so I've got a bunch of articles up on sprintingworkouts.com. That's my website. And then on Instagram and YouTube, I post a lot of video content. It's at athlete.x. YouTube, I post a lot of long form content. So, you know, longer videos getting into my own training or talking about the mental side of being an athlete or technical aspects. And then on Instagram, it's more short form content, obviously, because that's just how the platform is where, you know, quick tips and things like that. So I do try to I try to provide value with what I post, um, things that I think are genuinely helpful. That's my main goal with it. So if you're looking for content related to sprinting, whether as an athlete or as a coach, I try to cater to both audiences because that's what I am. I'm a competitive athlete, but I'm also a coach. And so as I make this content, I try to try to make it in a way that can, can benefit both populations. And I just try to help really and provide value. Well, good stuff. Well, thanks, Cody, for your time today. It was great talking, man. Of course. Thanks for having me on. That finishes up another show. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to help us out, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, whatever you're listening to this show on. I definitely appreciate it. We'll see you all next week with another great guest.